This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And many thanks to Anne McAllister for the Kelly photo. And now it's time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. And on the program today, Melbourne ophthalmologist Dr Colin Shepard recalling his recent visit to Palestine with the Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network study tour. Academic and writer Benoit Campmark speaking about the way school children are manipulated into choosing a career related to war. Update on Bougainville, the volcano, PNG backs down on the vote of members of parliament for Bougainville independence and also challenged by Bougainville what is PNG frightened of. Richard Llewellyn also on the theme, Leave Our Kids Alone, regarding preparations for war with China. And Mr Kevin Healy with his week that was celebrating 40 years of the week that was. A week, Jan Lister, when generous concessions from the big four global financial behemoths, tax advisors and invaluable consultants to government, oh sorry, no, non-value consultants, after the government announced it would legislate to impose massive fines, millions and millions on advice telling clients how to evade paying their taxes, the big four saying it supported the legislation, apart from then announcing it would seek little amendments like removing the penalties and allowing them to keep advising clients on tax evasion, pointing out that all their clients meet their legal tax obligations, uh, which obliges them to pay no tax. Uh, yes, but you must understand quite legally that uh, they have a legal obligation in those cases to pay no tax. Legal? Well, obviously, there are legal tax obligations which you pay and legal tax obligations which you don't pay. And clearly, our objection to this grossly unfair legislation is obviously no one needs our advice on what they have to pay. They want our advice on their legal tax obligations not to pay. Stand by for heavy lobbying so that justice, capitalist style, may prevail. And congratulations to our sundry governments and the property and development industries for their contribution to Homelessness Week, for without them we wouldn't have homelessness to celebrate. The property and development great socially conscious citizens' dedication to ensuring roof over our heads costs keep soaring, and governments for ensuring there is less and less public housing as they hand it to the goody-goody private industry that specialises in keeping the homeless in their place on the government. It's not that government and the caring business class don't care about the homeless. Why? Why many of those filthy rich property and development executives sacrifice their comfy beds in their own ultra-expensive prime real estate to spend one night a year sleeping on the MCG turf in a state-of-the-art sleeping bag to raise money for the homeless. A huge help, an invaluable help. It does wonders to ensure we can celebrate Homelessness Week. Well, we know the caring business class generally cares, highlighted as that bastion of care and compassion, the True Blue Aussie Business Profits Council provided a major contribution to the housing debate by assuring us migration had nothing to do with a shortage of housing, of soaring prices and rents. 
And of course, an advantage of being homeless is you don't have to worry about any of those things, about mortgage, about rent, migration, nothing to do with, which in turn has nothing to do with caring employers supporting migration so it can exploit or, or sorry, sorry, provide jobs for people it so cares about, although it does oppose evil union attempts to have minimum wages and conditions a condition of that employment. No, the housing crisis, the ever-thoughtful Business Profits Council told us, is down to government. Too much red tape, not making enough land available, not enough incentive for the private sector. And although they didn't say it because they're too kind, but no doubt bloody evil unions and lazy avaricious workers. Things should be looking up, though, because for ages now, governments have recognised these problems and provided lots of incentives for the private sector to solve housing problems, to fix up the odd problem created by, well, well when we think about it, perhaps by the uh, private sector itself. So it's the ideal solution to its own problem, because the super-duper obscene profits will also do wonders for the homeless. Bringing us to also caring, the which bank which used to be our bank, announcing a $10 billion record profit amid many of its customers struggling to afford the basics. But what generosity, what altruism. It, it did it for those struggling customers, Supremo Matt Conman told us. Yes, he said, the huge, huge obscene profits will allow it to help struggling borrowers. The bigger the profit, the more we can help. And he said that, with a straight face. Uh, so you'll provide lots of support, lots of help for those unable to um, keep up their ever-increasing mortgage payments, Matt. Certainly, and not so certainly, uh, that does pose a problem because it would eat into the profits we need to help people struggling with their mortgage repayments. Uh, so how do you get around that problem? By hanging on to the obscene record profits. Uh, why? Well, obviously, so we can help those struggling with mortgage repayments. How we've misjudged them, all heart. Oh, and the obscene record profits would act as a buffer for problems the economy faces in the year ahead. They always say that, just in case their workers get a bit greedy and think maybe they should benefit a little from the record profits under the false argument they may have contributed to them when their contribution to the record profits is no more than 100%. Money grabbers. Oh, and Matt also assured us the which bank which used to be our bank was not price gouging. He, he didn't need to say that. It's the last thing on our minds. The Journalistic Solidarity of the Week Award, to no need to tell you this, you guessed it, yes, a, a walk-up start. Lord Rupert of Wapping and his Wapping Sin. Full page, 100 days, I stand with Evan. Wall Street Journal reporter charged 100 days ago by evil Russia with espionage. Falsely accused, unjust arrest, brazen violation of press freedom, far-reaching consequences to journalism and the media generally, and to governments and democracy everywhere. The Wall Street Journal and the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world government vehemently deny the allegation and have called for his immediate release. A free press is pivotal to maintaining a free society. And oh, how we admire Lord Rupert's dedication to that. Then a P2 half-page story, photo of loads of news, very limited staff, all decrying this injustice. And I thought, 
When will we see a full page of Newsbury Limited staff transposing for Evan Julian? After all, if we can go gung-ho to free a U.S. of journalists, then obviously Lord Rupert would be even more concerned about a true journalist. Falsely accused of espionage, a brazen violation of press freedom. Uh, why not Julian Assange? Uh, because he is not a real journalist. Didn't you hear U.S. Armed Secretary for World State blank in the head point this out, this threat to journalistic freedom put U.S. Armed Security at risk um, by exposing war crimes? Exactly. Train killer actions fighting all across the world for, for liberty, freedom, and democracy are not war crimes. The, the world is full of very, very dangerous civilians and wedding parties who pose as innocent-looking men, women, and children. In fairness, the first war crimes case involving true war crimes is about to start a whistleblower who exposed them. Anyway, Lord Rupert, congratulations. Your journalistic solidarity of the week award is on its way. We've all seen those ads telling us how much a happy, happy person saved, and more particularly that the insurance salesperson was like a real friend. Come on, of course they're going to seem like a real friend. They're trying to flog your insurance, for God's sake. They're not going to snap. This shit policy costs a fortune. Take it or leave it, but hurry up. I've got, I've got work to do. It's a bit confusing, though, because there's so many insurance companies each telling us we'll save the most with them. And, and it's confusing because, one, this is advertising, and two, these are insurance companies. So naturally, we believe all of them, every word they say, like every word caring business class party supremo and would-be big supremo Constable Peter Duffer says, nobody has come out in support of union action. Yes. Pete supports a trade union in its opposition to relieving costs of living pressures. The Pharmacists Union, the Pharmacists Guild, supporting its opposition to making medicines cheaper. Customers won't, you know, like, notice any difference. They'll pay what they're, like, you know, paying now, but the poor pharmacists will pay for, like, socialism run riot, like... And Pete said the socialists reverting to calling occupied Palestine territories occupied Palestine territories and illegal settlements illegal settlements was a U-turn giving in to those who hate peace, backed up by the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin editorialising it as a serious error of judgment in redefining disputed territories and ramping up negative rhetoric on Zion settlements showing Pete and Lord Rupert know the UN of the US of the UN of the world is also negative on illegal settlements. And to round off a big week, Pete said the socialists had surrendered to minority voices by not appealing against that federal court decision brought by the Bangala people to prevent a nuclear waste up at Kimber in South Trublawasi. The local caring business class party member Rowan Ramsey had through described the government decision as cowardly, gutless and lacking moral fibre. My God, that is serious. And Pete said the decision showed what nat national, national disasters would occur if the voice referendum succeeded. Big week for Pete and for us. Thus now a bit of self-indulgence. 
40 years ago today, the world's worst ex-treasurer, Paul, 1983, delivered the first budget of the new socialist government. I wrote a satirical piece about it for one of the left papers of the time, how Paul had fooled the capitalists into thinking he was on their side. The producer of Parabion, which occupied the 7.30 Saturday slot for years, presented by our old comrade and friend, the late Bill Hartley, asked me to read it out as a one-off. Then a few days later, Reagan said, well, why don't you write something for this week? And the one-off became the week that was. The same running joke for 40 years. Where have all those years gone, I ask myself, while I'm sure our listener would think it feels more like 140 years of torture. A few years ago, it took a few months in a new year to get a team together for this time or that time slot. And meanwhile, Jan asked me to do the week that was on this program at four o'clock. Thus, we still now do pretty much a repeat Tuesdays. One thing hasn't changed. The greatest little economic order of them all, the delicate flower that is the economy, still controls our lives. We have suffered numerous spokespeople for the sundry chambers of profits who all spew out exactly the same anti-worker, anti-union venom. But thanks to their continued hegemony, the climate, the environment, has deteriorated as the interests of capital prevail. The US of continues to practice war is peace, continues to ensure the Palestinian non-land, non-people remain non-land, non-people. Trublawashi continues to be its puppet, and the first peoples of this land continue to be anything but first in their own country. So finally, from our first 40 years ago, bad news listener, next week we start our 41st year. Good afternoon. And once again, happy birthday to Mr. Kevin Healy, 40 years of the week that was. Dreesier needs members to survive. By becoming a subscriber, you're helping us to remain fiercely independent and free of commercials and corporate influence. Are you a paid-up subscriber? It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation, and $300 solidarity. Great value for 24-7 community-owned and community-controlled media. Please become a subscriber member today. Call the station on 03 9419 or sign up online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Where does the profit your power company makes end up? If you join CoPower, you get to decide where 100% of our revenue goes. So while we work to dismantle the whole broken energy market, our members are building the world they want to live in by supporting strike funds, renewables projects, anti-poverty initiatives, and much more. So change your power company and then start changing everything else. That's what CoPower is all about. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter. APAN, Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, recently held its first study tour to Palestine since borders reopened. One of the participants was Dr Colin Shepherd, an ophthalmologist from Essendon here in Victoria. Colin, was this recent visit to Palestine your first? 
Yes, it was actually. Like some of the other people on the tour said that we've always had a, an ideological objection to visiting Israel, Palestine because of the need to give money to the Zionist occupation forces. So this is as a way to enter the um, the country and also feel that we're not contributing to the occupation but helping the people who are living under occupation. And how long do you believe it's been that you've been concerned and supporting the people of Palestine? I suppose if you go back to uh, probably since the 67 war, before that I was probably like most people in the West, I knew nothing about the history of that part of the world. Palestinians were a non-existent entity. Said the David and Goliath myth and that, what I now realise are fabrications and lies from books written by Zionists like Abbott Yaban and propaganda films like Exodus. After the war, and I guess probably by the, somewhere by the late 70s, early 80s, it became obvious that something really nasty was going on there. The patient couldn't be hidden. The resistance of the uh, Palestinians uh, came to the fore with the PLO and Yasser Arafat. Uh, people were forced to pay attention. I was reading recently, Golda Meir at one stage said, oh, there are no Palestinians. The statement of genocide accomplished. When people like Yasser Arafat started resisting and fighting back, then she um, rather angrily said, oh, these people are just not human beings. Which is interesting because that's the attitude of the current Israeli government in, in relation to identity uh, there. Over time, I mean, books came out, uh, books by Norman Finkelstein, um, books like Gada Khan's book, Married to Another Man. John Kay, that's K-E-A-Y, books, Sowing the Wind, giving a detailed history of European, particularly British policy in the Middle East. And you suddenly realise it's been set a pack of lies. Western governments have committed an enormous atrocity against the Palestinians. The Palestinians hadn't done anything to anyone. They had just been quietly living in their country for the last, I don't know, 2,000 years, 4,000 years, however long I start counting. The only time their lives had been really messed up was when the Crusaders arrived in 1099. And after Saladin expelled them, they went back to a quiet little life until, guess what? The British and the Zionists arrived in 1917. And it's been to hell in a basket ever since. And I guess the thing that really, you know, people say, well, why should you care about the Palestinians rather than the Rohingyas and the Uyghurs and you know, a thousand other things. Partly it's because every Western government actively supports what's happening in Palestine, militarily, economically, uh, diplomatically. Uh, they mouth platitudes and they, they condemn human rights abuses by our geopolitical enemies. But there's a totally separate situation when it happens in Palestine. And, it's, and as a citizen of that, supposedly liberal democracy, that makes us all complicit in the policies of our government. And do you understand completely why all those countries keep supporting what is now known as, has been for quite a while, an apartheid state? How they can keep on justifying their position? Look, I think that it's probably multifactorial. One off is clearly money. Uh, I watched an Oxford Union uh, discussion with... Um, the American writer slash Zionist slash Pulitzer Prize winner Thomas Friedman. And someone asked him what could be done about America's unconditional support for Israel. And he said, there's nothing. You can't do anything about it. He said, if I stand for election and I support Israel, I make one phone call and I've got all the money I need to run the election campaign. You oppose Israel, you've got to make 50,000 phone calls. You find similar situations in Australia. I mean, Greg Sheridan, uh, in an article in 2010, and I'm quoting, he's a right-wing author, a Australian, who's got awards for services to Israel. 
I haven't read the original article, but I do have a copy of a blog by Anthony Lowenstein where he discusses the article. And he said what precipitated uh, Julia Gillard and Bill Shorten from getting rid of Kevin Rudd was his rather mealy-mouthed decision to expel an Israeli uh, diplomat a month or two earlier than normal over the um, assassination of a Palestinian in Dubai by Mossad assassins, uh, eight of them, four were using actual Australian passports and four were using forged Canadian passports. So um, the role of money can't be uh, ignored. I think the other thing is more fundamental. I think we are all colonial settler societies, and so we can, we can relate to what I like to call the cowboys rather than the Indians. And I, I can remember watching cowboy and Indian films when I was young, and we're always taught to look at these crazy Indians attacking these poor farmers coming in their wagon trains. Maybe being Irish, I always thought, well, what is, what's the Indian's point of view? These aren't innocent people coming. These are people coming with guns to fence off your land, kill your family, kill your animal supply. So I guess I'm one of those people who tends to look at things from the side of the Indian, whereas Western society, psychologically, we're on the side of the cowboys. So that's probably, I think, Australia's case, I think, uh, as one of the lawyers we, we spoke to in, um, in Palestine said, he says, in international affairs, everything is transactional. Human rights, nothing of that matters. Australia uh, is you know, capable of defending itself. If we ever took a stand against Israel, the United States will come on us, down on us like a ton of bricks. So we just do what we're told. Taking all that into account, what are the particular things or places you hoped you'll see? An experience? Oh, well, depends whether you're looking from my interest in history and archaeology or my interest in Palestine. <laughs> okay. Well, we could have both. Yeah. Well, look, I think they're always classical archaeological sites like Caesarea, Herodium, uh, Masada, Church of the Holy Sepulchre, Dome of the Rock, etc. Uh, Jerusalem was a nice city to wander around. I felt quite at home. And by the end of it, I was able to give guided tours around the Church of the Holy Sepulchre to one of our uh, colleagues um, who was there, Iqbal. And But I guess the main reason was, I guess the way I look at it, if you went to Israel on a package tour, it would be like going to a stage play and what you see is everything that's presented on stage. When we went, we saw what was happening behind the scenes. If you went as a tourist, you would travel on these nice big roads. You'd be sitting in the back of a bus. You'd probably never be hardly aware you were passing through checkpoints. Uh, you wouldn't realize that um, there are a whole series of parallel roads off to the side, which are designed to got to be used by Palestinians, that Palestinians are not able to use these nice big freeways. You know, at least six different types of um, IDs for Palestinians, telling them where they can live, where they can drive, uh, where they can work. There, you, you might notice these vast walls. Everywhere you went, there are these walls marching over the hills. And sometimes those classical walls you see with the big watchtowers. But other than that, and you'd, you'd be given lectures telling you all about the, the reign of King David and Solomon, who are quite frankly, from a historical and archaeological view, are fictional characters. So you, you'd just go through there, you'd go to a certain sites you've seen, you wouldn't, you'd never meet a Palestinian, you'd never hear about their lives, none of your money would go to Palestinians. I think this is particularly clear when we went to a place called the Tent of Nations, which is a, um, a farm just outside Bethlehem, and a whole village is surrounded by five Israeli settlements. And in this farm, he's just uh, talking about how people come to Bethlehem and they never see a Palestinian, never talk to a Palestinian, they never know how they live their lives. 
never know what it's like to not be able to have the road to your farm is blocked. Uh, and you're, you're not allowed to export your product. Uh, and this farm, for example, all the, you can always tell a Palestinian settlement uh, or village because they'll have these big black water bottles on them because they um, have to pay a lot of money for the water. It only comes irregularly and it's not pumped under pressure. So they fill the water bottles on the roof as much as possible. The Israeli settlements all have free, unlimited piped water coming from Palestinian land, I might add. They have lots of solar panels. Now, a guy called Dawood Nasser, who runs the farm Tent of Nations, he's been fighting probably oh, since 1960 or since the establishment of Israel, or since the invasion, to keep his land. He tried to put solar panels on his farm and he was told to demolish them. He's not allowed to build a house on his land, so he and his family have to dig caves in order to live there. Uh, they built cisterns to collect rainwater and were told they had to demolish them. So this is the sort of life Palestinians live under. But if you went as a tourist, you would know none of this. You would say, wow, this is wonderful. Did you travel to many of the rural areas to find out more about what it's like for the, the farmers and the people who live the land today? Well, look, we, we went to Tent of Nations, with, um, which is, you know, you can actually look that up on the um, internet. He's actually got quite a, uh, an interesting international presence, uh, an amazing man. He's a, he's a, he's a Christian. Uh, the village is largely Muslim, but as I say, we're all Palestinians. And he's managed to, he was, his farm was recently visited by uh, what's called a, an elders group, uh, people like Mary Robinson, the former president of Ireland, and Ban Ki-moon. He talked about the Jewish separate attacks on the farm. So we, had, we spent a lot of time there, had a nice meal, got to know him and his family. They get international students actually go there and people from local refugee camps to work out. We went to the Aida uh, refugee camp, which is just also outside Bethlehem. Again, a, a place where people have been living since, well, I suppose 1948, 1950. We met some of the children there. We walked around, spoke to guides there. We spoke to, we spoke to Australian lawyer, Jared Horton, and his assistant, Salwa Davis. The most, most horrendous part I think the, the most amazing thing is the normalization of the occupation. What the, the Israelis have actually managed to use modern technology, we can get to later, to fragment and disempower the Palestinian population. They have no government to, to speak of that they can refer to. Um, there are at least six different types of ID cards controlling where they live, where they work. People in Gaza are separated from their families in the West Bank. There are maybe five cities that are controlled by the Palestinian Authority, except when the um, Israeli troops decide to invade it. The people who bear the brunt, so that for most of the Palestinians, they just go about their lives trying to support their families. And as long as they don't get in the way, they can go about their lives reasonably well. There's the limits to, to where they can live, where they can drive, where they can work. Permits can be taken away at random. There are the people who bear the brunt of the occupation are probably about 500,000 people who live within a few kilometres of all of the 800,000 people who live in the illegal Jewish settlements. And I won't keep using the word illegal Jewish settlements and illegal settlements because by definition, they're all illegal under international law. So for the 500,000 who live with bear the brunt of the oppression, it's a, it's a horror story. Look, we were in tears at one stage listening to the stories of these people who 
the, the settlers, or the Jewish settlers, will frequently attack the Palestinians. And you see it in the newspaper. They throw stones, they shoot people, they kill their animals, they burn down their olive trees. That's what happened to Dawood's farm in the Ten of Nations. He had his olive trees and his fruit trees all bulldozed by the Israeli army just before harvest. They won't let him send his crops to, 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 to local villages to be sold. But the villagers, they, if their children throw stones back at the um, Jewish settlers, then they ring the, the settlers ring the army. The army comes round. They look up the usual suspects, find, and then when they think they know who's responsible, or if they can't find someone, they'll probably do a raid anyway. And the typical story is that you'll be asleep in your room and you'll suddenly wake up with 20 armed masked men, sometimes with dogs, sometimes without. They may be smashing your furniture and your children obviously are waking up screaming and crying. Uh, and one woman said they've done that 19 times in the last month and you never know when it's going to happen. Sometimes they knock on the door and you know you quickly rush to open it because if they kick the door down, there's 2,000 shekels to replace it that you haven't got. Sometimes they just blow the door open. Uh, other times they have these, apparently these hydraulic jacks where they can just quietly open your door without you knowing. And so you have this nightmare scenario. And then once they're in the house, they take any of the males, um, two of them for young boys, anything from 12 to 17, zip tie them, hood them, throw them out in the back of a truck, drive them off to um, a local prison. Uh, there may be soldiers there abusing them in the truck, uh, sitting their legs on them. Once they get to where they're going, they might be put, you know, five to ten hours in a detention cell, no water, zip tied, hooded, no water, no uh, toilet facilities. And then they're taken off and interrogated. There's usually all sorts of there's just traditional psychological interrogation techniques that everybody uses, I'm sure, including our people. The eventually someone they they'll use lines like, Look, all your friends have confessed to throwing the stones, so you're the only one who hasn't. So eventually someone breaks, he gets taken, and they get taken off to the other members of the, who have been brought in. Then, then what happens with you? Well, typically you plead guilty and you get formed there and the child, you know, 12 to 17, usually boys, case of girls. They, they'll spend about four months in detention. About, I think the figure is something like 95% of men and 70% of the children get sent to prisons in Israel, which again is illegal under international law. The force in Egypt Convention. So they're sent off to these prisons and somewhere in Israel for four months. There's usually a fine. Now, if they decide to plead not guilty, then they'll be locked up for at least six months, sent off to Israel, and eventually they'll go to a court where the judges are all Israeli Jews. Most of them come from the uh, settlements anyway. And of course, they're almost, they're almost always found guilty. And one of the issues, uh, one of the mothers was saying her son's in Israeli prison. She she has to go, it takes six hours each way on a Red Cross bus with no toilet to visit uh, her son for 45 minutes. And these women have to take anti-diarrhea pills or whatever just so they can survive the bus trip. When the kids come home, you can imagine the children, the younger children, I mean, they don't sleep at night, they're all tearful, they're nervous, they're terrified. The ones who come back, well, they're just psychologically destroyed. They uh, tend to drop out of school, they're depressed, they're angry, their whole sense of what the world is like has been turned upside down. So they, they can't cope with school. They, they come home and the, the house may be raided again with soldiers randomly coming in, smashing things up. Children are angry, isolated, they want to be alone, they can't sleep, they're depressed, they drop out of school. And this means internally it's a lifetime of poverty. 
they become aggressive to others, suicidal, headbanging, bedwetting. If in prison, they try to engage in self-harm, uh, like headbanging, apparently they get even more punishment. They're locked in a smaller cell, 24-hour lights on, no toilets, no showers, no sense of time, and eventually, well, these children, how do they cope? And you've had a whole, well, since 1967, I guess, you've got generations of children who've been said, uh, subjected to subjugation. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. And I'm speaking with Colin Shepherd from Melbourne who recently took part in an APAN, Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network, study tour of Palestine. One of the other things I suppose it's worth pointing out is that a couple of the people talked to us about the comparisons of South African apartheid. And the South Africans, according to one of the people, I don't necessarily want to mention names of the um, Jewish lawyers and things, I'm sure they all known to the authorities, but uh, one or two of them were actually a bit nervous about being attacked by settlers. Anyway, so he was saying that the South Africans would say this is much worse than anything they ever had to put up. For a start, they um, weren't being driven out of their country, their countries weren't being bombed, and they weren't subject to targeted assassination. They said Nelson Mandela would never be possible in Palestine because a possible Nelson Mandela would either be dead or he'd be imprisoned. And one of our speakers, who's an Israeli Jeff, he said the Israelis are looking for anyone over the age of 12 and he's got potential leadership capacity and that person is either dead or in prison. Did you get to experience a military court? Oh, yes, we went to um, a military court and uh, it was, look, I suppose it's, again, it's just one of those bureaucratic things and a whole bunch of tin sheds, which, you know, in the, the hot weather there, not very pleasant. The, the, the judges are mainly, of, they're mainly from the Jewish settlements. So uh, if you can imagine there's a Jewish youth accused of selling stones at um, Israeli settlers and he's being judged by an Israeli settler, <laughs> you can't just tend to go one way only. They're all conducted in Hebrew with no translators provided. There are some Palestinian lawyers working here, and most of the time it's kind of, you know, they've got one, they're allowed to have two members of their family in the court with them. So looking at the prisoners, there are usually three of them in a row who may be on totally unrelated crimes. So they're all sitting there while a bunch of lawyers chatter amongst themselves and look at papers and maybe talk to the judge. So it's very boring, nothing much happens. And eventually, they might spend this time here. And this may be nothing more than just a preliminary hearing to decide whether they'll have another hearing. One of the mothers talked about her son had been through this 17 times without having been charged with an offence. So, and most of the things are non-specific security issues. One of the mothers said, um, you know, she had two of her sons killed. And what they tend to do apparently routinely in this situation where she had two of her sons killed. Uh, they've arrested the other son and the husband because they're afraid that these husbands, for some unaccountable reason, might get radicalised. Uh, most of the time it's uh, for throwing stones or possessing a weapon or for, you know, they're just, they're just routine charges. The family just spend hours and hours sitting around in these hot courts just waiting for something to happen. And usually, and, yeah. On a little lighter note, visiting a family and having a meal with them. What was that like? Oh, so I suppose probably the closest we had to that with a Palestinian family was, again, at the, the Tent of Nations with David Nasser and his family. 
So that was good. That was, it was in a little cave, Malati's cave. It's called after, I think, his mother. The Peter Nathan's interview, we were just sitting around and he just spoke to us for ages. And we had so much there. I'm, I'm really collating my thoughts and to keep track of everything that happened there. But in his case, it, look, we had a nice meal there. And while well, he gave us a talk about his battle to keep hold of the family farm, because the way the bureaucracy operates, this whole little village of Nahalan is surrounded by Israeli settlements. This is the last hill where there's a Palestinian family. And his family had the foresight to get papers from the Ottomans in 1916. So the Israelis are definitely had this facade of going through legal processes. And so he spends most of his life going in and out of court, getting all sorts of documents, having to repeat any sorts of documents, having the documents lost and mislaid and going through it all again. Told he can't build houses, he can't have solar panels, he can't collect water, he can't tap for water, he can't take his products to to sale. But despite all that, he's managed to get an international presence. So he says, since international people started coming there, there's Jewish settler attacks have stopped. But the villages still have problems where they're separated from their farms. The Jewish villages occasionally release their sewers onto the farms, onto the village. But we, I don't think we, we didn't actually go off to any, you know, Oh, villages, you know, for, for food as such. Probably the closest we got to being this when we went to Hebron. So Hebron is a city famous for being the supposed burial place of Abraham and his and his family. And it's the site of the worst massacre in Israeli history, where a guy called Goldstein massacred 29 Palestinians and murdered uh, murdered 100 or something other others. There's a statue to him in some of these settlements and. Uh, He's uh, considered a hero by the leaders of the current Israeli government. But there's 20% of, there's about 30,000 Palestinians and about 800 Jewish settlers uh, who live in Hebron. The Israeli settlers are surrounded by about 2,500 soldiers. I think we're told there are three soldiers for every settler. The part of the Hebron we visited um, initially was what was the centre of old Hebron, where all the silks and the marketplaces were. And it's, it's a ghost town. There was these boarded up shops. There were a few of the older people there who, um, who all their family have left and they stay there. Uh, some of the poorest members of Hebron still live there. Uh, there's a section over the school where they've got this big netting, which they periodically have to clean because the Israeli settlers throw rocks and sticks and bodily fluids over on top of them. We, we had to go through multiple checkpoints to get to visit the Mosque of Ibrahim, where the burial sites are supposed to be. It's, we, were, we were being followed by a couple of young Palestinian males who were trying to sell us some products, which initially we, we were sort of saying, you know, just travel in the Middle East to get used to saying, no, I don't want it. And suddenly we realized, what the hell are we thinking? Of course we should be buying this stuff. These poor boys were quite, quite desperate and distraught. There were places where we'd get to a checkpoint and they couldn't follow us. They said, we're not allowed to go past this point. And their just lives are so desperate. Uh, and at one point, we were supposed to be, we'd pass through the checkpoint and we were going along this, it's a wasteland. All you could see was an Israeli fortification up on the hill and Jewish settlements surrounding it. But the roads were dead. There was another person on the roads who were walking, except the Israeli checkpoint. And we were walking to go to a, uh, around to where a Palestinian kindergarten was, so we delivered some pencils and things. And suddenly these soldiers started chasing us and calling out to us, well, you know, people like myself and Iqbal had been taking pictures of the checkpoints and from the soldiers. So um, we all just proposed to them to look old there they are. while we eagerly oh they start deleting all my pictures if I'm there with the shooters. Eventually they caught up with us 
And uh, then there was some little discussion. I said, look, we've been told you're not allowed to go any further. We had some discussion and Louise Arnold, who's leading our group, you know, asked them to check with their authorities. They said, no, you're not allowed to go. Not so, it's not safe. Security issue, security issue. Um, and that was kind of interesting because you get really quite paranoid there because you just don't know how far they go because they know they can kill you and there'll be no repercussions. To be honest, that was the closest we came to feeling like that. But it is where you, you're really worried about what you've got on your phone, what pictures you've taken with your camera, etc. Um, in the end, we sort of think, I wonder what that was about. And the only thing we could think is that they, they obviously, you weren't going to attack any Israeli settlers. Uh, I was able to be afraid that the settlers were going to attack us. It's the only thing I can think of. Yes, I imagine they wouldn't like you being there, but were there places that you would have liked to go but weren't on the itinerary, places that you'd heard about and really thought about Incredible. them a lot? I suppose from an archaeological point of view, I would have liked to have gone to Masada um, and I would have liked to have seen the site of one of Herod's palaces at Herodian, uh, but we, I just, we just didn't have any spare time uh, on it and there seem to be logistical difficulties to get in there. I think people could go there. You'd both want to organise a trip before or after the main tour. If I was doing it again, I would probably spend more time uh, either before or after doing some of the touristy stuff. Caesarea, the old Roman city there, would have been interesting. The Israeli Museum was interesting, but again, it's a very narcissistic view of this is the best way to describe it. Um, it's interesting when you're driving there and got a taxi, Yes, you watch the, it's it's in West Jerusalem, so they're all Israelis, but they're little families wandering around quite happily, except the guy's got this massive machine gun over his shoulders. Um, And we, look, I'd been to the Dead Sea on a previous trip to Jordan. I guess we we got to go to Bethlehem. Uh, I got got quite familiar with uh, Jerusalem, got to the whole church of the Holy Sepulchre, and I've got to go up on the the, uh, Zone of the Rock and sit around there. Where else would I have liked to have gone? I mean, there were, there were lots of little historical sites you could have gone to, but they were, they were probably there. You know, I'd, rather, I'd like to see Herodian and Masada. We did go to Jericho. Jericho, again, is an area which is technically a Palestinian-controlled area, uh, so you, there weren't any Jewish people going there. Tourist groups can go there, and it's certainly well worth a visit. They've got this amazing place called Hisham's Palace, which belonged to... Um, and in my colleagues built around 740 AD. And it's a world-class archaeological site with some of the most amazing mosaic floors that you'll ever see. But that was interesting. Then we went up uh, onto the lookout and we went to a mosque where supposedly Moses is buried. That, that was quite interesting. That, that was something like looking at the real Palestine and um, the real Middle East rather than these, I suppose, Disneyland type versions. Yeah, I'm not sure if that answers your question. I think so. Well, just um, to finish off, Colin, there's always the second time you can go. And I'm just, which areas had or or peoples had the most impact on you? Look, it's strangely enough, look, there are probably two. One, we went, after visiting some civil rights lawyers in Tel Aviv, we went to um, the seaside suburb of Yafo, that's the former Jaffa. And it's kind of, because it's an old area, it's a lot of Palestinian shops and people there. But there are a lot of Israeli ones too. And the interesting ones, the number of shops that were selling Israel, which had Israeli flags out them. And most of the, most of the place shops you didn't. So you, you, you probably, if the, what we, we learned was if you've got Israeli flags, the answer is don't go there if you're not Jewish. 
So Isabel and I were looking for a place to go and have a cup of coffee. So we found this nice little restaurant on sort the of street side seat. So we, we went uh, we went to sit down and we said, oh, we went we went in and said, oh, I could take a seat. And the little man rushed out and he said, no, 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 only family allowed in here. And so I just shrugged and we started to walk out. And then I said, turn around and said, well, what do you mean only family? You mean only Jewish? And he said, right, yes, only Jewish. So Isabel and I were, were kind of... Um, at that, so I ended up making sure I got a picture of myself outside the restaurant. When we were later having a cup of coffee in the uh, little Palestinian coffee shop we found, Isbel, and Isbel, he was one of our people, he was one of the three men on the tour. He's um, uh, Indian from Fiji, uh, Muslim background, he's been president of local Muslim societies. He actually confided, he said, you know, I found that really deeply disturbing, that really upset me. Now, from my point of view, I just thought it was a hoot. And I thought, oh, you know, this shows what goes on. That was one issue, uh, which was, was kind of revealing. And uh, I'm trying to think there was something else that went out of my short-term memory. Yes, another strangely moving thing was when we were at the temple, at the Wailing Wall. We sort of, there was, there was two of us, it was Isabel and myself and a couple of the girls, whose names I've tried to call at the moment. We were just finally wandering around as two of us, and we started walking down to Wailing Wall. And the first time we went there, a couple of these men in their funny little hats and their ringers came running up and rather aggressively said, no, no women allowed down here, you have to leave, blah, 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 go away. So we just shrugged and the women went off and looked at their section. But another time we were doing it, um, with a, uh, another couple of women who decided to come with us there, uh, we're doing the same sort of thing, absent-mindedly wandering down. And this, this older Jewish gentleman, you know, he's wearing the, the shawl, but he wasn't dressed up in the funny hats or anything. He sort of came over and he said, well, look, you know, excuse me, but look, the women aren't allowed down there. And uh, so said, oh, that's fine. And then, and then he sort of came over and said, look, I, I apologise. I really didn't mean to upset you, but if you go down there, you're likely to be attacked. We shook hands, and to me, that was the most moving experience. This was a, a Jewish person who was relating to me and the others as a fellow human being, rather than someone who saw us as, well, basically subhuman, which is the impression you get from the Jewish community there. They simply don't see you as a human being. And this was the sort of Jewish person I used to know, and they just don't seem to exist anymore. And that, that, I found that extremely moving, and maybe a bit hopeful that people like that well, I thank you for telling your story, Colin. I do hope that you go back again. Yeah, look, uh, I can see myself doing it um, under the right circumstance. I know where the Palestinian hotels are and uh, I know where my favourite little Ittiman coffee shop is on the Carmel Wright Street. <laughs> and, oh, and if anyone ever does go there, the Austrian Hospice is a great place to relax after a long day walking. <laughs> thank you so yeah. much. Okay, well, thanks for that. I hope it's of interest and help to you and the listeners. And many thanks to Dr. Colin Shepherd for his talk on his trip to Palestine with the APAN, Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network Study Tour. Because the Palestinian fight isn't just the Palestinians' fight, it's all our fight, because it's a fight not just about land, it's about a fight for freedom. Everybody should be standing here today saying, free Palestine. Solidarity with our Palestinian brothers and sisters on behalf of the Bumbanja Nation, my people who've never ceded their sovereignty. 
we should be recognizing Palestine as a state and recognizing the rights of Palestinians. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. Fears are Palestinian scarves, and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes for fears, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organizations. From the traditional black and white fear to an array of modern designs, explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Where your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafias.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. While Australians pride themselves, for the most part, in having stricter gun laws than most and not being warlike in disposition, their governing officials have increasingly thought otherwise. War drums are beating. The chatter about acquiring and building armaments is getting more frenzied as the client state of the US Imperium, firmly enmeshed in the security arrangements of the AUKUS Agreement. Canberra is becoming increasingly interested in militarising the population and turning the country into a garrison state. That's the opening paragraph in an article penned by academic and writer Binoy Campmark in Pearls and Irritations. Binoy, we're becoming more aware of what is happening today, but when and where did the plan push come to target children as young as primary school and leading into universities? Well, uh, I know certainly in the Australian context, the attempts by arms manufacturers and um, arms companies to influence children uh, generally and place their tentacles into the education system was starting to become an issue in Australia in the 90s. The, you know, in a more international context, uh, it was being done much earlier. The United States was being done decades even before. And the idea was to, of course, encourage individuals to do something for, as perverse as it sounds, the public good. The idea was that you would contribute your particular role to science, engineering, you know, technology, the, the so-called, as they say, the STEM subjects uh, focused on these particular areas, and you would do good for your country. Uh, so in a sense, rather oddly, even though, of course, these companies operate on a corporate commercial basis as well, the idea was that you would be serving your country in addition to creating terrible things as well, terrible weapons, of course, and ideas surrounding that. So in the Australian case specifically, in the 90s, it started becoming a real problem, and it was started to also impress various teaching groups and advocacy groups across the states in Australia about the fact that this was a serious problem. And it's become even more problematic of late, you know, as we've uh, you know, touched on before. How has it changed over those years? Well, I think how it's changed is that 
the arms industry has just become more powerful. Um, it's also become more subtle, more nuanced. So, for example, in Melbourne, you go out to uh, Williamstown and you see the BAE Systems uh, location, the, you know, the particular company quarters there. And what is interesting is that it's, it's nondescript. You can't really say what it does one way or the other. But you just go to their glossy advertisements and you see what they're trying to do in terms of influencing school children, uh, university graduates or those wanting to study science heavy subjects and so on. And the idea is to recruit them for weapons manufacturing enterprises. It would be a different thing if the aerospace element of BAE was uh, more, shall we say, <laughs> inclined to um, peaceful purposes, but that's not what they do. They engage in a whole range of items which are very sinister and they are done in benign, benevolent ways. So that's one of the reasons why they've become even more successful because they have marketed their campaigns, their strategies in ways that make it actually look rather decent to participate and you know, become employees of these uh, organizations. It doesn't seem to me too subtle, though, to, to target primary school kids. Oh, no, the action is not subtle in terms of targeting, but the message is deemed uh, is, is uh, not direct, saying, you know, join us and help us uh, kill foreigners. It's not, of course, what... That's <laughs> not the message, but the it's more the case of the you know, this, this interest in the scientific base and... You know, so rather than pursuing, you know, humanities is associated with conscience and criticism and ethics and whatnot, whereas the pursuit of science is associated with curiosity and discovery and so on. So that aspect of it is what's being, as it were, drawn up with children. It's it's being, you know, children are encouraged to, as it were, treated like a plaything, like toys. And this is exactly what the, you know, the, the so-called nuclear-powered submarine propulsion challenge, which is the Defense Department's idea, is based on. It's based on getting the idea of nuclear submarines into schools in Australia, which, of course, is deeply problematic. So you see this as another sinister development, in a sense? Yes, oh, it's, it's, a, it's the logical progression of, of what arms companies have been doing for many years. You know, they, they are facing challenges themselves. They they know that um, they are not exactly, you know, the death industry is not a liked one. It's problematic. They sell indiscriminately. It doesn't really matter who they sell to. Weapons uh, don't have a conscience. Uh, the people selling them evidently in some cases don't have a conscience either. But the idea is that these weapons are distributed uh, to the highest bidder. Uh, and we have this perverse situation where it doesn't really matter who uses them as long as they're purchased. And in the broader context here, the fundamental thing, and this is the sad reality of it, is that the shift to interesting or, you know, the idea of encouraging children to do science-heavy subjects has been colonized by these arms groups. And uh, it's across the board. And they've become very savvy about also the monopolizing arguments about, you know, Disadvantaged communities, for example, um, in Australia, there's been a particular targeting of Aboriginal communities as well. It's extraordinary what they're doing, what BAE Systems, for example, is doing by putting money into these outreach programs to get women and members of the First Nations communities involved. It's extraordinary. Just for those who 
might be just hearing this for the first time. Can you explain a little bit more about this nuclear-powered submarine compulsion challenge? So the challenge dealing with you know, the Defence Department's advertising on it is based on essentially a recruitment drive given the AUKUS arrangements and given Australia's this daft agreement of acquiring nuclear submarines, which will include, I actually suspect it's going to be a failed project, but uh, it will supposedly entail an Australian hybrid design with uh, the UK and the US involved of a nuclear-propelled submarine or powered submarine um, of the, uh, you know, based in Australia. But the idea is to generate interest now in the schools and the universities in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, the so-called STEM subjects. And the idea is to encourage children, high school students ranging from years 7 to 12, to essentially go to participate in this challenge, which the winners of whom the winners will then end up traveling to see essentially military facilities. They will go to HMAS Stirling in Western Australia uh, to see how the submarines work. They will also be actually discussing a specific, you know, they'll go on a tour. They will see a Collins-class submarine as well. They will dine with submariners. They will have the whole show essentially. And so the idea is to encourage them to find this project appealing. And then, you know, essentially continue on their work after school. So that's really the idea. The idea is to um, bring children involved, essentially treated like a, almost like a, a gaming scenario. I think one of the, the aspects of the award, whoever wins the award, will also be able to participate in a war gaming scenario, driving through or steering, as it were, submarines through Sydney Harbour. The idea being is that, you know, you get behind a console and you do that sort of stuff. So this is the other aspect, by the way, that the military establishment uh, in cahoots with um, war manufacturers or arms manufacturers are doing, which is to gamify the field. It's to bring children's sense of curiosity and, um, and games to the fore, which, again, is another part of the huge problem. You mentioned earlier that educators were expressing some concern about the way it was going then. Have you had any correspondence with educators in the last couple of years to see how they feel about the way the things are going now? I know that uh, there are campaigns in certain states. Uh, in New South Wales, for example, you know there are individuals who are deeply concerned about the curriculum. And there are teaching you know, groups, advocacy groups, that are very concerned about the way this is infiltrating and influencing curricula. Interestingly enough, um, it's like many things in Australia regarding these sorts of problems. There's no unified approach. So, uh, in, for example, in South Australia, the, it's not particularly defined that uh, teachers should engage uh, in programs that encourage essentially the use of arms uh, and broadly speaking. In some states, it's more, it's, it's more demarcated. But the real problem here is that and perversely enough is that in many states in Australia, there is a definite stance against, for example, the use of arms, you know, in sense of personal firearms, for example. There is a tradition there of opposing it and by virtue of that not promoting such weapons. And yet there is this gray area about the issue of arms manufacturers. I find it extraordinary that 
the likes of Raytheon, BA Systems, and so on. They are entitled, they are given invitations to go to schools, and they can participate in programs. So in South Australia, for example, this has been the case. You have arms manufacturers participating and going along and giving talks in schools, along with teachers, at the full behest and encouragement of the school administration. So it's deeply problematic. So you do have opponents, yes, but you also have, you know, the, the classic problems, the same thing with, you know, universities as well. The vice chancellors love this sort of stuff. They are all for the AUKUS submarine program. They just see money. They don't see conscience. Just wondering about the universities. Is it a fact also that some of these arms manufacturers are putting funds into the universities? Oh, it's undeniable. It's not anywhere near the level of it is uh, as it is in the United States, where the um, the education military complex is very advanced, and it's been advanced to the point where it almost looks tragically irretrievable unless you were going to remove people from universities and from the army and, and whatnot. In Australia, it's developing that way, and certainly the AUKUS arrangement looks like um, it's a foretaste of things to come. Uh, the there are a number of universities that have arrangements with manufacturers. Uh, at RMIT, for example, there is a there is an effort to um, being made to expose and to reveal details of relationships that you know university management have with uh, various companies, including an Israeli drone company. It's not very clear exactly what the relationship is, but it is also very clear that there is a relationship. And uh, RMIT's engineering arm and scientific arm is very much engaged. So the question is, to what extent, what are these things being used for and so on? Of course, it's always advertised in a benign way, uh, namely um, innocent civilian projects. But we know very well that drone technology can be used for far more sinister, more dangerous and lethal things. So Australia has its problems. Um, they will become more pronounced with the AUKUS agreement here. And I see that becoming ever more problematic because vice chancellors and university managers are always on the hunt for the buck. Big bucks and the offing for militarization of Australia. I'd imagine as with the educators in the primary or secondary schools that university educators are also upset about the way this is going. And it seems to me just another nail in the coffin of universities being for the people, by the people, and it's now nothing like that. Yes, I couldn't agree with you more. The nature of the university system in Australia has become very corporatized. Um, the idea of the public service has been totally, well, quite literally outsourced. Um, it's not even considered as a serious thing. The idea of treating students as pupils seeking knowledge Seeking awareness, seeking enlightenment is regarded as laughable. Meetings at universities are now generated or you know, are geared purely to kill ideas and to embrace things such as exactly an orcus style thing. Many people will disagree privately, but publicly they'll they'll not do, for example, what I'm doing now with you, chat openly about the diligent, you know, the, the total demise of the system. Uh, in favour of military projects and so on. And I think that's a particularly sad thing. And I, you know, I, I just can't tell you how utterly ridiculous it is, but also morally, you know, morally impoverishing. And also the satisfaction of working in the university. It used to be a, 
a challenging position and a well thought of position. I'm just wondering how you personally cope with the way that the universities are heading and will you continue to work with universities? Well, Jan, ultimately, it's a, well, it's a, it's a very, very salient question, I, I, I must say, and it's something that I do think about actually more than, <laughs> more than just a, a weekly basis. It's a very regular thought to me. And it's a question of saving people from themselves. I suppose that's the reason why I'm still in an institution um, that I'm working for. It's, it's based on the fact that I've had some wonderful students over the years, you know, wonderful PhD completions. Hundreds of students have passed through my classrooms, and I always like to think that an idea somewhere has managed to find root in their minds, and they proceed then to think about things differently. And that's the whole point. You teach students to challenge things, to question things. The general sense these days is to not question things and to essentially get a consumer-based product, the awful reality of modern university education. But the key is to fight it as much as you can, as much as you can individually can, because you have the power in a classroom to talk directly to human beings who are impressionable and who want to learn. There are issues, of course, about whether they're encouraged to learn or not, but I always try to encourage them to, and then take it from there. If the light is turned on, and if something, you know, if someone turns up and knocks and says, hello, I am home, then I've done my job. Well, can we talk for a few minutes about friends of yours in Aspie and how they're getting on at the moment? Well, the yes, the, the Aspie group, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, has um, been very busy of late in, in, in a number of ways. But one of the, of course, big projects, uh, the big hobby horse of theirs is Chinese interference. And I always find it very interesting when it's spoken about in these ways, because you know, those in Aspie received money. They received money from U.S. sources. They received money from the Pentagon. They received money from the U.S. State Department. They don't disclose how much. They always claim that they are transparent about these things, but they are not. Uh, in fact, uh, they, they tend to sort of believe, essentially, that they're performing a role, you know, in warning Australians against uh, encroachments from foreign powers. And let's face it, the foreign power of concern is the People's Republic of China. And they issue these reports on a regular basis about um, manipulation in the media, manipulation on social media accounts, um, you know, all sorts of things that supposedly are linked to the Chinese Communist Party. And it's always done like that. It's the Chinese Communist Party. It's seen as this monolith, this, this entity, this sinister beast out there manipulating Australian arguments. And, and um, I've written about this, um, of course, as you know, and, and for, the, for your listeners, uh, the, uh, the wonderful outlet from John Menedieu, Pearls and Irritations. And I mean, and what is interesting about it is, is to see the fact that Aspie has an agenda that's so utterly clear, which is to complain about foreign interference whilst ignoring what they themselves do, which is to interfere in the affairs of Australia directly at the behest of US power. And that I think is extraordinary. And of course, they have the media on their side to a large extent. You turn on the ABC occasionally and you'll see, well, it used to be Peter Jennings, I'm not quite sure who it is now, but they get a really good go on the mainstream media. Well, they do, they do. And I think one of the things, um, you know, Peter Jennings still has a prominent role there, you know, executive director, advisor and so on. Um, but the, the thing about it is that 
there is no caveat before individuals who are interviewed on the ABC from Aspie, and which, which is remarkable because there's a caveat for virtually everything else. I mean, there's a caveat, for example, if the Russian ambassador might be interviewed, there's a caveat, obviously, that he's the Russian ambassador. A read between the lines, we're not going to trust him. You know, he's a warmonger and a Putin sympathizer, blah, blah. But what is interesting is that with Aspie, there is never an introductory part. We advise, we are a public broadcaster. Uh, we are also, just to let you know, that Aspie receives funding from the Pentagon, the U.S. State Department. I would have thought that would have, if you're going to get people speaking about it from those particular groups, you need to explain where the source comes from. And these people are not going to speak about anything unsympathetic to U.S. foreign policy goals. Uh, and and that's, that's what's so astonishing. So why bother going, you know, if you're going to go for Aspie, then you might as well, that's been my argument for a long time, interview someone from the U.S. State Department, because that's, first of all, it's more accurate. Secondly, it's straight from the horse's mouth. You don't need to go through, you know, as it were, no pun intended, the Chinese whispers of Aspie when they receive their mission statement from the State Department and the Pentagon. So I, I think, why bother? And similarly with the United States Study Center? Indeed, the U.S. Study Center is very much of the same ilk. Uh, it was established specifically to combat perceived anti-Americanism and uh, um, perceived anti-U.S. sentiment after the disastrous uh, criminal invasion of Iraq, of course, in 2003. And uh, the idea was that sentiment was so poisoned by that, that efforts had to be made to establish a center that would essentially sanitize things, you know, render things more palatable for the Australian public. So the, the establishment of the U.S. Studies Center has been based purely on an ideological perspective, namely to create good, a good image for the U.S. and Australia. So again, be it Aspie, be it the U.S. Studies Center, the agenda is very much evident, very clear. That is to say, to paint the U.S. or specifically U.S. foreign policy objectives in a positive light. Well, where does it leave us if we can't get independence in the ABC, get independent voices? We don't seem to hear too many peace activists being interviewed. and We all know where they come from. They don't have to explain. Yes, you're, you're quite right. And I, I think this, this just goes to show the, well, it, it goes to show the old problem about how you source your information. And so your listeners will be familiar that you need to be skeptical. You need to be skeptical about where you get your information from in any sense. It doesn't matter what it is. I always find it a bit rich too. And, and, and look, I, I will always say that I will, at first instance, I'm always curious what the ABC does say because a lot of the information is reliable and they do have some excellent investigative journalists um, working on their team, unlike, let's say, other networks where investigative journalism is anathema and seen as, as a bit of a strange phenomenon. So they do have uh, you know, marvelous revelations. When I say marvelous, marvelous not the word, but revealing investigative journalism, such as uh, what happened with the Afghan files, the use of whistleblower material and so on. The, these are things the ABC can be proud of. But the problem is that when the advisory board works or when the journalists on a daily basis come up with programs, they want to find someone who's a go-to source. So Aspie 
advertises itself. And this is probably more a testament to their campaign and their PR strategy is that they advertise themselves, the same thing with the U.S. Study Center, as supposedly objective bodies that deliver opinions that are not varnished in any way. But of course, we know that this is simply not the case. But many people just don't know. They just look at U.S. Studies Center and they think, oh, this, this is fine. He's an expert or she's an expert. They don't question, look behind the facade and realize that the center was established with a very clear ideological purpose. Well, finally, Benoit, where do you place the SBS News and Current Affairs programs? <laughs> well, it's interesting. I, I just just for, for disclosure, my, uh, my wife, for example, works in... Um, does translations for Serbian um, and does actually programs connected with uh, the SBS Serbian program, you know, in Melbourne. And uh, it's it's interesting to see how that works because what tends to happen with these programs is that sometimes the material that comes through is what you would not uh, see on the ABC. Some of them are, dare, dare we say it, a bit saltier, they're a bit more revealing. And I think um, for anybody who's interested in wanting a bigger perspective on that. I'd say that SBS offers a somewhat different view precisely because it's a channel throughout the course of the day which has news programs that are just a tad different. Obviously, we always have to, again, accompany these things with a caveat, which is to say that a news program, for example, from Iran, we need to be careful about its source, be it Russian, Ukrainian, Macedonian, Serbian, whatever it might be. But the good thing with SBS is that they get people on the ground who go through material, they have a charter that's quite formidable, and I think that's something worth noting. Well, I thank you once again, Benoit. Oh, it's a pleasure, Jan, you know, anytime. Benoit Campmark is an academic and writer and a regular contributor to the online journal Pearls and Irritations. Seamen's Union and the Waterside Workers Federation took part in the longest boycott in Australian history after Finochet took over in Chile. A democratically elected government was overthrown with the help of the United States. There are many Chileans in Australia who suffered torture, imprisonment and whose family members have been disappeared. We can't move forward as a society without healing these past crimes. The Chilean community, in partnership with the AMWU's International Solidarity Initiative, is holding a commemorative event for the 50th anniversary of Chile's coup, September 11, the day that changed us forever. Join generations of Chilean refugees, exiles and recent arrivals, together with Australian unionists and activists in the solidarity movement, for a night of testimonies, speakers, poetry and music. On Monday, September 11, from 6pm at Solidarity Hall at the Victorian Trades Hall, this event will be held in English, and all are welcome. To register, search for Chile 50 Years on eventbrite.com.au. Chile, 50 years of solidarity and struggle. A 3CR supporter. have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home well drop them in at 3CR and put them in the books and boots bin books and boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional first nations communities and children across the country 
Contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au. We love a good book. I'm speaking once again with activist, long-time activist for Bougainville, Vicky John. Vicky, just after we spoke several weeks ago, Mount Pagana erupted. Can you describe where that volcano is on Bougainville? Mount Pagana is the volcano that erupted in July, caused a lot of damage from the ash and the lava and the ash and the lava have also caused problems with the water and the rivers in Bougainville and two um, evacuation centres have been set up in Torokina and Wakanai. And last week the um, Papua New Guinea Defence Force were actually asked to come and help with the with humanitarian aid to help the victims um, of the volcano. It actually caused quite a stir in Bougainville knowing that the Papua New Guinea Defence Force were coming back to Bougainville. So there was a lot of unease, but in the end, um, an emotional ceremony was held and welcomed the sailors, actually, from the Papua New Guinea Defence Force. So, yes, so they're there to deliver much-needed humanitarian supplies to care for the people at Torokina and Wakanai. Well, just for those who aren't aware of the role of the PNG Defence Force during the war, can you explain briefly what role they did play? Back in 1988, uh, the landowners of Bougainville around the Panguna mine had had enough of speaking basically to deaf ears and stole dynamite from the Panguna mine and blew up the electric pylons at that mine uh, and closed the uh, mine down. The mine is still shut to this day. But sadly, after that, a war ensued between the... Bougainville Revolutionary Army, the people of Bougainville, versus the Papua New Guinea Defence Force, which is basically armed and supplied with um, weaponry, etc., by our taxes. Our taxes actually paid for the, you know, the helicopters, the Iroquois, the Iroquois helicopters, the ammunition, uh, the army's, you know, uniforms and boots, etc. And the war sadly went from basically 1988 right through until 1997, so nearly 10 years. And in that time, Bougainville was blockaded. So no one in, no one out, um, no humanitarian aid. The helicopters, the Iroquois helicopters supplied by Australia were used as um, gunships that were strafing the villages of, of Bougainville. The war caused the death of around 20,000 people. Well, you can imagine that the people weren't too happy when they saw them coming back into their country. Oh, absolutely. It was a very emotional, historic uh, and very emotional. And even the um, commander, the general commander of the Bougainville Revolutionary Army, Sam Kiona, he was even there to greet them whilst, you know, the fellow from the Papua New Guinea Defence Force Navy did shake his hand and said it was, you know, uh, an honour to meet Sam, Sam Kiona, 
my own assumption is that Sam was also there to make sure that they were just there for humanitarian um, assistance. Is it difficult to get in that part of that part of um, Bougainville? Are there many roads or are they more tracks where the people are living in small villages, I would imagine? Yeah, so uh, the, the, when I was there some time ago, a long time ago, you know, the roads were horrendous. And if there's um, flooding or rain, you can't get through. You know, even four-wheel drives get stuck in the mud, you know, like they just sinks. The cars just sink, you just sink, everything sinks. There will be a task because apparently down the southern part of Bougainville now, it's flooding. And that's the next humanitarian crisis because people are having to leave their homes and, and get away from the floods. Is there a history of volcanoes on Bougainville? Well, as far as I know, that the, the current volcano that's recently erupted, Mount Bagana, it was actually dormant for years. So it's, it has been quite a shock for everyone to see this volcano now spewing out lava and ash and causing all these problems. So whether it's part to do with also climate change, it's hard, hard to know, but I wouldn't be surprised. Well, they're talking about 7,000 people being evacuated. That's a, a fair number of people. Is it known if there were any injuries or did the people get out before or they had pretty good warning to get out? But from my understanding, there was a good warning and the warning, oh, I can't remember which um, volcano observatory it was. I think it was America or Hawaii. So it was only just starting to sort of rumble without the um, spewing out of all the lava and, and fire and ash. The Bougainvillians were around that area were told to evacuate before it did actually start overflowing. There was warning. So even if it calms down and the eruption finishes, the water supplies are damaged, the crops probably destroyed, many houses demolished. What's going to happen to those 7,000 people, do you think? Well, I'm not too sure, Jan, but... The evacuation centres that have been um, set up in Torakina and Wakanai, um, obviously the landowners in those areas have been compassionate and helpful by, you know, housing the people. But whether they can ever go back to, you know, their, their area looks very unlikely. And I'd imagine where they are staying, the people are living mainly a subsistence life, so... They can't afford or have the resources to continually support people coming in in numbers. It would be it would certainly be a stress on um, you know people in Torakina and Wakanai. Yeah, so it would be. But I'm assuming also that the humanitarian aid is getting through, so that they are being catered for as you know as much as possible. Okay, have the sailors left or are they still there? Still there. An issue we discussed last time, Vicky, was Bougainvillian anger over the change of the vote on independence. It had been a simple majority and the PNG government came out and said, no, 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 we want to, you have to put up with a two-thirds majority. Has that been resolved? Yes, at last, and the Bougainvillians were right again. So it was back in June, I think it was around the 28th of June, that the Attorney General of Bougainville, Ezekiel Massat, announced that a simple parliamentary majority vote on the ratification was all that was required and that was all that was agreed upon 
But the PNG Minister for Bougainville Affairs, Manasseh Makiba, stated that the ratification process or the ratification vote required an absolute majority, meaning two-thirds of the um, government had to vote for Bougainville. Bougainville knew all the way along that what had been agreed to was a simple majority. Um, last month, actually, the um, 31st of July at the Joint Supervisory Board meeting, um, it was finally resolved that a simple majority will be enough. So whilst Papua New Guinea, I think, were trying to move the goalposts or you know, cause all these roadblocks to Bougainville having her independence, the Bougainvilleans um, were right, were telling the truth all the way along. Well, they've waited long enough. Oh, I think they're sick of waiting. I'm sick of waiting. <laughs> and, you know, the referendum was held way back in November 2019 and we're now up to 2023 and this process has a ratification still hasn't gone through Parliament yet. Well, on the 1st of this month, the Bougainville President, Ishmael Toriyama, called on the Prime Minister of PNG, James Marape, to spell out clearly and honestly his fears about Bougainville obtaining independence. How did that go down? I think it got to the point where during that last JSB meeting that the Bougainville president was invited to educate, shall we say, um, or have an awareness program to educate the national MPs about the real history of Bougainville and um, and the political process that has been um, dro- been driving the rights of the Bougainville people to get their independence. So the Attorney General of Bougainville, Ezekiel Massat, presented a very in-depth overview of Bougainville's you know historical journey, including the conflict period. He emphasised the crucial negotiations and agreements that ultimately led to the signing of the 2001 Bougainville Peace Agreement. He also pointed out or highlighted that, you know, the various options during the negotiations that that both governments agreed upon were, during the referendum, only two options, either greater autonomy or independence. And as we know... Uh, independence won the vote. 97.7% of Bougainville want independence. The national government were also reminded that the referendum result you know, overwhelmingly indicated the desire for independence and it was essential to embrace and openly discuss that outcome. Well, what's the delay in the PNG MPs voting on the issue? I really don't know when the next meeting is set up. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm grateful that you know, the PNG politicians have listened, you know, and taken it all on board. But I'm not too sure when, what the next process is, when the next meeting may be. I'm, I'm, I'm truly not too sure. I'm wondering whether some of those MPs in PNG have got con- family connections with Bougainville? Most likely. Most likely they would have say they would have, and they would be the ones who would be very aware about, you know, what has happened in the past with Bougainville. Are you and others, Vicky, in Bougainville and elsewhere concerned that if the vote goes against independence, what the outcome will be? My assumption is that the Bougainvillians would take it to the United Nations. If the ratification process isn't 
on the side of the both little people. That would delay it again and again, wouldn't it? It, it, it would delay it again, but it would be that the, the cry would be for a unilateral declaration of independence through the via the United Nations. Looking at the economy of Bougainville at the moment, we've got the the volcano in the mountains. You've got the flooding to the south. What do you know about how the economy is going? Because a lot of countries all around the region, matter of fact, around the world, are not going too well at the moment. What are you learning or hearing about Bougainville? I do know that funding is being held up by the Papua New Guinea government. So there are uh, peace and restoration grants that are owed to Bougainville in the amount of one billion kina, which is around five hundred million dollars in Australian dollars, and it's it's not fair that Papua New Guinea is hanging on to the money that's owed to Bougainville. And secondly, what are they doing with Bougainville's money? So you know that's still a massive concern. Yeah, you know, again, is this part of the you know is this the way you stifle people further? You know, to harm them, continue to harm them instead of, you know, doing the right thing? I don't know. But anyway, that that is another question that still hasn't been answered. Why have Papua New Guinea still got the money that is owed to Bougainville? And it's a case in a number of countries where the people are demanding their rights and they don't get it. And the young people say, well, I've had enough. We're going to fight this. Is that a concern for Bougainville? I don't see it as a concern at this stage. The, like the peace agreement has lasted. The, the peace agreement has lasted. There hasn't been any fighting or killing. Bougainville wants peace, so um, I think at this stage I don't see an armed conflict. It may happen, but I can't see it myself. Are you in contact with people on Bougainville? I am. I have um, rung a couple of times to a friend in Bougainville. I haven't spoken to them for some time. I'm connected mostly via Facebook, getting an idea of what's happening in Bougainville that way. And any idea of tourism happening on Bougainville? Is that happening at all? There are projects, you know, to have eco-tourism. I know that um, diving was another one that was seen to be going okay, but I haven't actually looked into how those companies are going or how those... Um, Ventures are, ha- are, you know, proceeding. I don't know. And cocoa and chocolate. Yep, that's still happening. They're, just, they're doing well with that. Every year now they have a chocolate festival where I believe, um, you know, that's pushing bogomil chocolate out there to the world. So yeah, that's definitely happening. And bottled water. It seems strange, doesn't it, in a, a tropical country to be selling bottled water? But but it's a um, it's an initiative by the People in Bougainville, plastic bottles are a concern, but I've read recently that they're also going to get some sort of recycling plant happen, happening to recycle the plastic. So that's a good and um, a good thing. Yes, and with agreeing with you, water is becoming a scarcity. I mean, I hope that it is fruitful for the people of Bougainville, but it's also they have to be very careful about looking after their own water as well. And hopefully the floods will subside and everyone will be okay in that area. Is that the area where the mine is? The mine is actually in central Bougainville. So the southern area is yeah, yeah down the southern part. I think um, the Mount Bagana, the volcano, 
is further west of the Panguna mine. And are people still talking about reopening that mine? People are still very concerned about opening that mine. Currently, there's an international scientist from Czech Coffee, and they're currently doing field trips and research with regard to the impact that the mine has had on the people and their well-being. And the first assessment was carried out in April of May this year to identify and assess the environmental impacts at the Panguna mine, as well as the wider social and human rights impacts relating to the Panguna mine. The last thing they did in July was do aerial topography surveying. The results of that and the impact assessment will most likely be presented next year. And there is an Australian-initiated report coming on human rights issues during that war? Yes, so that's through the Human Rights Law Centre in Melbourne. They are part of this international team. I have not seen any report from them at this stage, but I'm sure we'll certainly get to see something by early next year. Well, we hope that um, the people get their independence sooner rather than later. They've waited long enough. Absolutely. It's time for Bougainville to have her independence. And Vicky John has been supporting the people of Bougainville for over 30 years. We're not meant to have anything nuclear in our country. It's really important and urgent that, that Australia get serious about nuclear disarmament. Well, nobody anywhere on the planet has figured out how to deal with highly radioactive waste. Most of those who've managed nuclear weapons consider this to be the most dangerous time that we've ever lived in, with the danger of nuclear war at unprecedented levels. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Wondering how to pay your donation to 3CR Radiothon? It's easy. You can pay online at 3cr.org.au or call us any weekday with your credit card details on 0394198377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash or card. Or simply post your cheque or money order to P.O. Box 1277, Collingwood 3066. And be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. 3CR Radiothon 2023. Stay tuned. Stay radical. In past months, I've spoken to a number of activists and leading historians about a number of issues pertaining to the Australian War Memorial. The controversial redevelopment, 500 million plus, the Australian or Frontier Wars, the increased involvement with weapons manufacturers and native mounted police and their place in history, etc., Today, we look at what could be called preparing children to accept war and military service 
both primary and secondary school children. I'm joined by Richard Llewellyn, who was a registrar at the Australian War Memorial from 1986 to 1995, as well as other positions there, and active as a supporter of the Heritage Guardians fighting the development project. He recently submitted an article to Pearls and Irritations titled, Leave Those Kids Alone. Richard, can we begin with two short paragraphs from the article and go from there? Any activity trying to create an inherent goodness about engaging in warfare is in no way an admirable activity. Creating gameplay interactives of real-life devastation of civilians that invite children to compete is reprehensible. Doing so with no realistic acknowledgement of the human cost is utterly, deeply contemptible. One is left to wonder if there is not more than a whiff of the Jesuit doctrine stolen from Aristotle. Give me a child till he is seven years old, said St Ignatius Loyola, and I'll show you the man. Surely not. But why should this suspicion arise? How do those words connect to the war memorial, Richard? Uh, unfortunately, that is part of what the war memorial is doing at the moment. I need to put a little bit of context here, I think. The idea of presenting material relevant and appropriate for particular ages actually started with a thing called the Discovery Room, which was started by uh, Dr. Michael McKernan, who was uh, my boss at the time, the deputy director, very well-respected historian and author. It was age-relevant material. It was things like um, photographs, uh, excerpts from diaries, bits of history explained. There were no games. War is not a game, and we certainly didn't consider it to be appropriate. In fact, we didn't even consider it. It was, you know, beyond beyond thought that the memorial would be a place for games and so forth. I'm looking, I've, I've got a few things here. I've pulled up articles because my article was actually triggered by an article by Dr. Sue Warham. I think you've spoken to Sue on, a, on quite a few occasions, probably. Uh, she's head of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. And they've done some really wonderful work on researching and um, how the military-industrial complex is buying into the education of children buying into developing uh, an affirmation, affirmative view of armament manufacturers and war because that's its business. So, you know, it's sort of like handing out cigarettes, I suppose, in a way. Now, I'd like to go back, if I may, very briefly, and and we'll tie this back to the memorial in a moment. Now, actually, before we, we go back, November 2020, Matt Anderson, who's the current director, giving evidence to the Senate Legal and Constitutional Affairs Committee into Nationhood, National Identity and Democracy, stated that, quote, 
we develop in young learners a deeper understanding of the connection between civic responsibility and military service by exploring the stories of Australians who have served. This comes, incidentally, from uh, Dr. Warren's uh, The AWM Children and War Crimes article of July 11, uh, that particular quote. She points out that this is not, in fact, a purpose in the Memorial Act. It is not supposed to be tying things like service and civic responsibility together. It is supposed to be commemorating and explaining what service and the sacrifice of the people who served meant in the development of Australia's social history. So the AWM is now and has for some time because it's been the dam busters, you know, see if you can bust the dam game was from oh, about a decade ago in the time of Brendan Nelson as uh, director, surprisingly. The whole involvement of the military-industrial complex in the main in inculcating, as Paul Daly said in an article, several articles, mine being one of them, and several other articles, Paul Daly in um, The Guardian Australia, and an article, Kits for Killing, Walkers Goes to School by Benoit Campmark in Pearls and Irritations just a few days ago. Yesterday points out that organisations such as BAE Systems, Tails, Northrop and so forth, uh, all have involvement in school and younger, right down to four-year-old Lego courses or competitions or whatever they are in various places of involving children in activities which I think, I'm quoting again from uh, Binoy's article, as Shelley Willsmore, head of human resources at BAE Systems of Australia, observed with regret Young people, and young women especially, can have a negative view of the role of the defence industry. So they're out to change that. They want to make sure that, quote again from BAE, companies engage in PR exercises designed to prevent community opposition to the presence of their research and marketing facilities. Or, following my quote from Ignatius Loyola, uh, as Paul Daly said, get them young and inculcate them. MAPW identified 48 programs involving children in various activities uh, that were of use, at least of use, to the military-industrial complex. That's terrible. Trying to, to inculcate children and, and have an affirmative view of weapons manufacture. I'm saying the War Memorial is is part of the general move. I mean, it's going on, as, as, I, as I said in my article, various people are getting on board. Now, AUKUS has kind of opened floodgates in a way because of the incredible amount of money. Uh, and everybody wants a slice of the action. The universities are gearing up to have courses for people so they can understand nuclear propulsion, even football clubs are having some sort of program. So, yes, the memorial has dealt itself into the game. 
let's put it that way. And it's it's been doing that for quite some time. As as we said, the dam busters, the memorial started having this specific focus on activities for kids uh, of an affirmative nature or of a fun nature. Uh, if if you go into the web you and Google fun things to do at the Australian War Memorial, you you will find you get some results. People seem to you know think it well it's a tourist attraction, so it should be fun for kids. You know, let's get in there and have games. The article very recently. Andrew Fraser, the piper, had an article in Pearls and Irritations saying that you know he, he watches people leaving at the end of the day and he's afraid that he sees them at the moment uh, leaving quietly, respectfully, thoughtfully. And he's starting to wonder with the new development and the way that the memorial is promoting these light-hearted activities, whether they're going to be leaving with the, the kids fighting over who got the highest score in the Dam Busters raid or who broke the model tank or whatever, and he laments this possibility. But in fact, it started roughly about... It's been going on for about 15 years and building up with the uh, continued introduction or continued acceptance of donations by the major armaments companies to the memorial. And there's quite a lot of dots to be connected as to why that may have become such a favoured activity by the War Memorial. But it suits the armament manufacturers because, you know, you can tie Anzac. The memorial is the epicentre, if you like, of the Anzac legend. And if the memorial is promoting something, uh, then it must be de facto part of a Anzac cloak idea and therefore good. So the armament manufacturers, by being sponsors, get kudos, I guess. I must confess, I see it a bit as, as cynical as, um, uh, I'll say, McDonald's trying to have a healthy eating program. Yeah, <laughs> I don't believe they're serious about that. I think they're just trying to get virtue out of it. And I think that's what the armament manufacturers are doing. It's useful to them. It's useful as clickbait to the uh, the more venal uh, elements of the press, which is a significant amount of them nowadays. And the, the memorials, you know, helping it roll along. It's not what the memorial was ever intended to be. The whole ambience of the place, the whole reason of the place was to try and teach people just how bloody awful war is and how foul it is. And here you have companies being associated very, very closely with the memorial who manufacture products that in considerable amounts are banned by international treaty. <laughs> they conveniently don't mention that. They're pushing the line at the moment that um, it's STEM, science, technology, whatever it is, and an interesting and exciting career, <laughs> which kind of has this vague echo of that wry joke that used to be uh, about uh, in the American uh, anti-Vietnam War, you know, join the army, 
go overseas, meet exciting and interesting people and kill them. They just leave out the last bit about kill them. Could you give a couple more examples of those 48 that you found most objectionable, apart from what you mentioned before, the dam busters? The Medical Association for the Prevention of War issued a report in 2021 uh, called Miners and Missiles, Weapons Companies in Schools, Issues for Educators. It's easily Googleable. It lists 48 programs. So you've got things like BAE Systems, First Lego League, First Robotics Competition, Concept 2 Creation. Yes, Boeing has a First Lego League and First Robotics Competition above and beyond exhibition. Northrop Grumman has Space Camp, Foundation Teachers Academy. Tales has Tales and Tech Schools Design Competition. Saab, Subs in Schools. Raytheon, Advanced Technology Industry School Pathways Program. Australian Submarine Corporation, ASC Robot Rumble. Subs in Schools. Airbus Group, Australian Youth Aerospace Association. I don't know all of the contents of those, but quite obviously some of them are designed for very young. I don't think you can sell Lego competitions mostly to the over 8 to 11 group, and the 8 to 11 group is a target group for BAE, for one. Really, you need to read the whole report. It tends to make your hair curl or possibly drop out. Many weapons companies supply children with images of exciting cutting-edge research while obscuring the human cost of its systems. I think one of the things that is, as I said, really concerning is that these are the same people who are manufacturing weapons banned under international treaty, you know, cluster bombs, uh, landmines, gas, and it's been going on for, you know, forever. The weapons industry relies on warfare and it relies effectively on being able to be competitive by being more effective at killing more. And mostly the more that get killed uh, are civilians. You know, incidental damage. The Take the bombing of Cambodia, for instance. The civilians were the ones who suffered. On and on and on, Winston Churchill was prepared to drop anthrax onto the German population. We had, when I was at the War Memorial, we found a container of phosgene, that's mustard gas, uh, still half full, that somebody had donated to the memorial, one of the the units somewhere along the line. Uh, Not something I I really wanted to find amongst the stuff stored in in my store there along with a lot of other nasty bits and pieces. Richard, is it known how much these war machine manufacturers donate to the War Memorial? Yes. David Stevens from Honest History has written some of that. I think in the last couple of years it exceeds, it's in the 
area of a million dollars or more. Some of it is, uh, is, is in kind. You get Bushmaster vehicle being donated uh, or supplied. Uh, I think Tails supplied one of their vehicles for display. The fence, of course, <laughs> tend to hand over its surplus out-of-date equipment, uh, which caused some of the recent directors to salivate and, you know, receive with great uh, joy. But I think you'll find that over, say, about the last five years, we're talking about certainly in excess of a million dollars. Some of the donations are very significant indeed. You can wonder what the staff at the memorial think about this change in the direction I don't really know. I, I, I have contact with one or two. In fact, I, I'll be going down on Monday to do a, a verbal history issue, and I know that not all of them, by any stretch of the imagination, are happy about it. But I left in, uh, let's see, 1996. Virtually there is nobody left that I know. It was noticeable when Brendan Nelson came in as director, there was a, a significantly accelerated turnover of staff. For what reasons? I'm not going to attempt to conjecture, uh, but a significant number of the staff there may be associated in their own mind with the change in emphasis that happened roughly from about 2012 onwards. Effectively, Brendan Nelson saw a different role uh, to any of the previous directors. I think he tended to move the the memorial in, to push the memorial uh, as a tourist attraction, in particular, considerable boasting about, you know, we got more visitors this year than they got to the pyramids in the Nile. So you got a million visitors through the door. How many of them went back out through the door understanding more about the effect that Australian involvement in war has had on our social development? Because to us, at least, that was what was important. I was there at one stage. I spent several months in um, as uh, acting assistant director, I think, for visitor services. And one of the things I used to do was wander through the galleries and talk to people uh, about their experience. And, you know, so I could get a feel for what we were doing right, what we were doing wrong, <laughs> where we were wasting our time and where we might put more emphasis. And I realized at one stage that we were getting an influx of tourists at about 4.30 in the afternoon. We closed at 5.00. And I, I happened to see one of the bus drivers who had pulled up and just got it. I said, you know, how come you guys arrive here at 4.30? You can't understand the memorial in 30 minutes. He said, oh, no, it's just that we pick them up at the airport and you're the nearest clean toilets. That's not really what our social history is supposed to represent. Just finally, Richard, as you know, I'm in Melbourne. We have the shrine here. Could you imagine similar happenings at the Shrine? I haven't visited the Shrine, actually. I'm, I'm very well aware of it. 
but I think it, it's it's pretty static, isn't it? I mean, there are there, there there are not much in the way of changing exhibitions or interactives. It's it's a place to walk around and develop your own empathy with what's being presented to you. Uh, would that be a fair statement? Well, isn't that the whole raison d'etre for it being there? <laughs> well, that's what I understand it is, the same as in Sydney. Why should Canberra be any different? It's different in that, that it, is, it is a dual, well, it's a, it's a triple purpose organisation by design. The major part of the, of the emphasis in the memorial is respectful commemoration and understanding. It has a large collection uh, of memorabilia, like, uh, in a way, of items associated, all sorts of things. You've got things like recruiting posters, flags from the First World War signed by Nellie Melba and, and other notables, items that were fashioned in prisoner of war camps, weapons, that illustrate uh, what was being used, and some of them are truly ghastly. You do have a military museum element, but the the museum element there, the focus was on these are subordinate to the story. They are part of stories. So, for instance, we never collected items that, uh, that were not involved in active service. An example, the uh, French fighter. After the war, we had the Sabre, and then we had the, uh, a French fighter, which never, never saw active service. We never collected one. In fact, one was offered to us, we considered it, and sent back to the RAAF thing saying, you know, thanks very much for thinking about us, but uh, seeing as it never saw service, it doesn't fit within our acquisition policy. About two years later, Auditor General gave us a rev up for having considered taking this fighter on. And we, you know, they gave us this report, and, but we didn't. We considered it and rejected it. Yes, but, but you wasted time considering it. Isn't that what we're supposed to do before we reject it? Oh, well, I suppose so. Whereas you now have two of the FA-18 fighters. Now, they admittedly, yes, the FA-18 did see some active service, even if it was in Iraq. We should never have been in. But, uh, again, uh, Brendan Nelson making a statement that um, we've corrected an historic anomaly of not having an F-111. We had, I think, 24 F-111s in total, one of which spent something like an hour flying a reconnaissance mission over East Timor, and that was the entire... They, they never fired a shot in, in anger. The, um, the, what they mostly did was do afterburner runs over things like the Olympics. But, you know, he wanted to collect, collect this. There was a change in emphasis from the respectful commemoration of sacrifice uh, to being uh, an all-singing, all-dancing military museum. There is a place for those, and it's not the memorial. The brigade uh, or service museums are all over the place. 
the memorial should not be a museum per se. It has a national collection of items that are relevant to its purpose. We thought it was important. And Richard Llewellyn was Registrar of the Memorial from 1986 to 1995, as well as other positions, particularly supporting the Heritage Guardians fighting the Australian War Memorial Development Project. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.